couple years ago, uh, I got this text. I think it was August, and maybe it was September. I got this text, and it just said, hey, I'd love to grab lunch sometime. And uh, the text was from a guy, I'll just tell you his name. His name was Eric Peterson. His name is Eric Peterson. Some of you will know Eric. He teaches at Helena High. He's also a three-time state champion basketball coach for the, for the girls' basketball team at Helena High. I know Eric. I've rode with him a couple times, but mostly I know him because his son plays baseball with my youngest, and I've had the opportunity to coach his son a couple times in league, and also he's been on this all-star team for several years. So more than once, while coaching a baseball game, knowing that you know, the coach of the year was leaning against a fence, was watching us coach, I felt pretty self-conscious. So the fact that he was texting me, actually, it, it kind of confirmed some things because we it was the, when the season was over, so it was in that season where you're kind of just evaluating how things went and what we need to get better at. And so I saw this text from Eric Peterson, and to me it was like a God thing because I had been thinking I want to get together with this guy. And so I quickly texted back like, yeah, let's do it. And, and I said, in fact, I've got some questions for you as well. And so we set up a time. Um, I th- we went to McKinsey River. I think he picked McKinsey River. It was a couple weeks out. I was pumped. In fact, I even set up the meeting on a Monday, which is kind of a big deal in my world. And I walked into the lobby, and I'm so excited to, to have lunch with Eric Peterson. And for those of you who know Eric, he's like six foot seventy, and he's always got this beaming smile on his face. And so I'm walking in the lobby, and I'm looking for Eric. And clearly, he's not there because you can't really miss Eric. But simultaneously, there's a guy sitting on a bench over against a wall. And he immediately greets me. Hey, Adam. And, I'm, and my, I, I, I abide by the definition of introversion that it's not so much about people, no people, but high doses of stimulation versus low. So now I'm in this environment where I'm really trying to figure this thing out because I'm trying to find Eric. And now this guy, there's this guy greeting me with over-exuberant, kind of extroverted enthusiasm. And so I'm kind of trying to be courteous to this guy, but I'm looking for Eric. And then the guy stands up and he starts walking towards me. And he says, uh, so where do you want to sit? And that my brain was just completely short-circuited because <laughs> what I thought, because I've done this before too, is like, I must have double-booked. And so Eric's not here, but he's going to be here, and I apparently set up lunch with this guy, but I don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> and, and then the lady comes up, so where would you guys like to see? And I, I just, I, I couldn't take, I just turned and I looked at the guy, it's like, okay, I got to confess, who are you? <laughs> and he goes, I'm Eric Peterson. And I was like, What? And then he goes, I'm Ethan's dad. And some of you may remember Ethan, who used to drum with us. He was in high school. And so my brain is catching up now because his dad, also named Eric Peterson, uh, I knew, like, oh, yeah, this guy used to be a pastor in Missoula. And then they moved here so his wife could become a police officer. And now he's a part-time pastor in another church in town. And he texted me and said, there's some stuff I want to talk to you about. And then I said, there's some stuff I want to talk to you about. (sighs) So so I just like, okay, dude, I just got to tell you, like, here's what's going on. And I had lunch with Eric Peterson. <laughs> but it is this, for me, this, uh, this, this kind of giant exclamation point that reminds me that the stories we tell ourselves, they really do matter. And that uh, the way that we're feeling the narrative, the way we're living the narrative, but more than that, the narrative that we value, it's a big deal. And obviously, coming out of what we're coming out of, that seems all the more true. It reminds me, uh, Brian McLaren, I heard him say this years ago, and frankly, it was in an interview, and it was in the season where I I leaned into his voice, honestly, more than I do now, but Brian had said in an interview, he said, we don't live our lives based upon the abstract things we believe. Uh, our, Our lives reflect the stories we most value. 
And that for me was a little bit of confirmation bias. Like obviously we named a church narrate, so the value of story and human story wasn't lost on me. But then more recently, I heard Cal Newport, who's also somebody you have a great deal of respect for, never personally met, former MIT prof, now at Georgetown, who's written a couple books that we've spent, we've done a whole series from, his first, or his second book, Deep Work, and then he did a book called Digital Minimalism, and actually he's got a new book out that I've not read yet, but I own it, about like doing work without email. <laughs> Can't wait to figure out how we do that. No offense to you, of course, I'm just saying like, wouldn't that be amazing? But anyway, Cal Newport said in the midst of the pandemic, I heard him say in an interview, he said, just stop and consider the technology that we have and the inherent power of that technology. I mean, social media, iPhones, the internet. I mean, even I think what's happening right now in Israel, like military power, like just think of the technology. I mean, this iron dome thing that intercepts things like something out of a, out of a cartoon. And then he said this, and yet still the most powerful thing in the world is story. The story we tell, the stories we value. And I say all that because I think that leads to this question of, so what was the story that Jesus valued? You know, Dallas Willard says, and we're going to get into this a little bit more next week, it's not a matter of are you following somebody, it's who. Like we're all, none of us are, none of us are the end result of our own ideas. We all have heroes, we all have people that we follow. I think another way to ask this question is, one way is like, what were the stories Jesus valued? But another way to ask it is, who, who among Jesus, the, the, the stories Jesus had to choose from, who were his heroes? Who did he follow? Because I think that the, the quick, easy thing would be to say, well, he's Jewish, so he follows the Jewish story. Which, sure, yeah, he lived in, a, in an age that was far less secular than our own. His life would have been formed by, by the Tanakh in ways that ours is formed by other stories. But still, it's a diverse story, and at times it's a competing story. It seems like the compilers of the text and the followers of the early faith valued that the voices speak to one another. I mean, you've got Jonah in one sense saying God wants to rescue the Ninevites, and you've got the other prophet Nahum or another prophet Nahum saying God wants to judge and crush the Ninevites. You've got a a theology, a lens in the text that says what's important is that people understand they're made by God and and they're valuable. But then you've got another lens that says, no, yeah, yeah, you're loved, but you've got a job to do. You've got a responsibility, and you're going to be held to account for fulfilling that responsibility. So my point would be, I think it's a little easy to just say, uh, or or simplistic, to say, well, Jesus was Jewish. What, What were the stories? Who were his heroes? What was his favorite story? And I wonder... This is my conviction, but, but what if what we see in the baptism and temptation narrative, and to be sure that's a multifaceted, multi-layered story, you could literally do a dissertation just on the temptations, and I put a couple podcast references on the mind map that you can get in the room or online that kind of can take you deeper into many of those different layers. Tim Mackey calls them layers of the onion. But at the most cursory level, and maybe the most important, what if part of the temptation and the baptism narrative, it, it, it tells us what story Jesus valued. At 30 years old, as, as, as God and human, what story he was gonna live. He had lived long enough, not unlike you and I, to be troubled by some of what he saw in the world. He saw competing agendas. He saw th- some things that were for God and some things that thought they were for God and some things that clearly weren't for God. He was making a decision at 30 years old which way to go. But then he goes to get baptized. And we explored a little bit a couple weeks ago that, that this was a baptism of repentance. This falls into a long line of tradition where, 
where at times you just recognize that you've been getting the story wrong. And sometimes that's from overt sin, and sometimes that's just because things have shifted, and sometimes that's just because you kind of didn't see it, but now you can see it. But you get baptized as a way of saying, I'm committed to getting the story right. Which doesn't mean that Jesus getting baptized is his confessing that he's sinning. What, what it seems like thematically the gospel writer Matthew is doing here is he's saying, Jesus is saying, I'm going to get the story right. And if you follow Matthew, in a couple of weeks we're going to start into the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus really lays it out. It's where he goes, this is what I'm about. This is what it looks like to follow me. This is how I'm getting the story right over and over again. You've heard it said, but I'll say to you, Jesus is going to offer an interpretation of the text that he's claiming is superior to all others or correct compared to all others. So at his baptism, he says, I think I'm going to get the story right. But then there's the voice the voice that he hears at his baptism, and this is, I think, in my opinion, I'm indebted to, to and I, we can talk sources, I don't think this is an absolute universal opinion, but it's, it's, it's definitely vested, it's, it's, it's def- guys like N.T. Wright go here. But here's this voice, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. A voice from heaven, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, many study Bibles will say that this is this quote, and you just leave that up there for a bit, Holly, that this quote is an amalgamation of a psalm and the prophets. There's all different theories here. My opinion is, is that this is Ramez. And we've talked a little bit about Ramez in the past, but Ramez was a Jewish, it was a Jewish way of teaching, but it's kind of a human way of teaching. We, we do it all the time. Like, I, I say to you, um, hey, you guys... Anybody? I'm dating myself because I don't watch movies anymore, but, or very often. What, what movie? What movie? Goonies. Yeah. All of us old people got that one. And if you haven't seen that, then you should go watch Goonies. What we're, we're referencing, or like the easy one, I suppose, the most cliche, like, Luke, I am your father. It, it's a remez. And in doing so, what you're saying is, I don't have to bother telling you the whole story. I'm just referencing the story. Well, what's the story that this comes from? Maybe it's an amalgamation from the psalm and somewhere else, but certainly there's a somewhere else, and that somewhere else is Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. In fact, specifically in Isaiah 41, there's this text, and we explored this a little bit in December, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. This is one of those instances where a more trained eye can, can see the remez but scholars will tell us it's there. And there's some nuances and we'll talk about it, but what's, what's the bigger story then that Jesus is drawing from? Well, I spent all of December trying to convince you that the, the most read part of Jesus' Bible, so to speak, was Isaiah 40 to 55. Why? Because it's a unique story. It's a time in Israel's history when they've gone off the rails and God is, it's, he's holding them accountable. And this is the first time in the Jewish scriptures where Israel is explicitly referred to as a servant. It's alluded to elsewhere, even all the way back to Abraham. I'll bless you and you'll bless others. But this is the first time where God is just that blunt. You are to be my servant. And remember, other ancient Near Eastern gods, they created people so that the people could be the slaves to the gods. So they could do stuff that the gods don't have to do. That's why you sacrifice your kids to them and other ideas. This God claims to have created people to in turn be his representatives to his creation and his people. And when things go south, he grabs a people, namely Abraham and his family, and says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a servant to the world. The story in Isaiah 40 to 55 is about a heartbroken God 
who wanted Israel to be his servant to the world, but instead is seeing themselves as, as just the privileged elite. And the story of Isaiah 40 to 55 is about this God who's grieving Israel. The answer to the world's problem was you putting a towel over your arm and serving people. And within the narrative, there is a transition. Chapter 50 is a key one. There's part of what makes this, this section of scripture so famous are these, they're called the four suffering servant songs. Here's, here's the beginning of one of them, Isaiah 50. The Lord has given me, and notice, notice the change there from Israel to a me, the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. Morning by morning he wakens me, wakens my ear to listen to those who are taught. In the story, there's a transition, and the transition moves from a God who's asking Israel to do something to a servant who goes, I'll do it, to a person who goes, I'll do it. And part of what makes this section so powerful, in my opinion, is at the very end of, uh, towards the end of this story, and I'm gonna read you this whole chapter, it's long, this, who this servant is, in other words, who Israel's supposed to be, really comes into view. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. This is the fourth suffering servant song. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and they made the intercession for the transgressors. Now, to be fair, it would seem that nobody was sitting around in Jesus' day going, oh, here's how we'll know it's the Messiah. He'll do this stuff. 
Remember, in, in Jesus' day, uh, the way Ray Vanderland says it, to ask what did people in Jesus' day expect by way of a Messiah is like asking today, what kind of vehicles do Americans drive? It's very diverse. I, I don't think it's being honest if we say that Jesus fulfilled something that everyone was sitting around saying, this is what he'll be. In fact, to me, what makes it more amazing is it seems that what Jesus latched hold of was this heart of God in the text who is calling a people to win by way of service. And at his baptism, it seems like what's being commemorated is Jesus the Christ going, I'll do it. I'll be that person in the world. I'll fulfill, God, what you wanted. I'll show him, Lord, what it looks like to do power your way. And what follows then are the temptations. Now why, and, and, and I, I kind of made my own decision here, I, I think these two stories are yoked together intentionally. Why? Well, because what's the Jewish story? God calls Adam and Eve to something, and it's quickly derailed. God, God calls Israel to something, and it's quickly derailed. L- listen again how first chapter four starts. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, you, you may or may not believe in intelligent evil, but this story is framed around an evil that we're never told where it came from, but that is clearly at odds with what God is trying to do. If, in fact, what's going on at Jesus' baptism is his more or less saying, I'll do it, God, it would follow then that that would be challenged, wouldn't it? Because goodness is always challenged. We have our own statements in our culture around the best of intentions. And now they're often challenged. And so Jesus enters into this season of temptation. But again, listen to the nature of them. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now again, there are so many layers. It's one of my, the most fun chapters of the Bible to study because there's so many layers. But, but the most surface layer, it would seem, is Jesus going, I, I take my shots from God. I, I take my direction from God. He's not suggesting that the human body doesn't need food. That's Gnosticism. That's not early Christianity. What he does seem to be suggesting is that he's a person who's committed to God's story. He's pulling into Deuteronomy. He's recognizing how easily we lose the story. And in fact, he's trying to live into his commitment to be the story, which was a call to serve people. He's a person of the text. And frankly, I I just find myself wondering a lot lately if... uh, if we, if we are really going to persist as, as Christ followers into the future, maybe text, the text is more important than it's ever been. Like being a people who, whose thoughts are start from and put their most reliance upon the wisdom of the text. Now, that's not to imply that there aren't different understandings of that wisdom, but even if we can start on that place, we've made a long ways, haven't we? Jesus is going, no, 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 I, I take my direction from you, Lord. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against your stone. To which Jesus said, again, it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Dallas Willard says the most, the most powerful thing in the world are ideas. 
I wonder if he would accept that ideas, therefore embedded in story, are all the more powerful. That ideas are what have power. What's the idea here that's, that, that evil has for Jesus? Well, I would suggest it's spectacle. I mean, what happens if you crawl up to the top of the spire of the Civic Center on a day like yesterday when downtown's just busting and the farmer's market's happening and the trolley's going and it's just busy? And you jump off of said spire, and just before you splat on the ground, you pull kind of a Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible kind of move. That's going to be powerful. What if the central temptation here is, Jesus, you, you can get power by a way other than serving others. Remember, Jesus had heroes to draw from. He, he could have done this and justified it. It would look a lot like David. His hero could have been David, what did David do? He raised an army, he built an empire, he, he, he made this great nation. And, and sure, Jesus references David. I'm not suggesting that he had David as a villain, but it doesn't seem like his chief framing narrative was David. It, it could have been Moses, and we've talked a lot about Passover really does frame a lot of the way we're called to understand, especially communion in the life of Christ. But again, Jesus doesn't do it the way Moses did it in Egypt. Ten plagues, water into, into blood, these great feats of strength, so to speak. What if Jesus' hero, his framing narrative, the story that, that shaped his life was, was the original Israel story? A God who said that, first of all, before Israel, to Adam and Eve, your job is to serve creation, to tend it, to take care of it. And then to Abram, I'm gonna bless you and bless others. And then there's this somewhat obscure story that is so central to the gospel narrative about this suffering servant in Isaiah who says, I'll do it. What if that temptation is about Satan going, you, you can accomplish that end by way of a different means? And what if part of what's going on here is Jesus' commitment to finally defeat evil but not to do it the way we would come to expect, to do it in this kind of absurd way. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And I have great respect for the way that just caused Sherry to pause and go, whoa. What's going on here? Well, we all know. We all make a decision every day whether or not life is about us or about God. And the tricky thing about our current time is it's quite possible to, to check all the boxes of Christian and frankly, still really live a life about self. It sure seems to me that, that the narrative here is, is begging us to see what Paul so clearly saw and that is that Jesus' way was this way of self-giving love. I was sitting with a friend yesterday at a baseball game and there's a runner on third base, no outs, and we were just having this conversation about like, and I just said, well, what the untrained eye doesn't see right now is if this, if this kid at the plate does his job, he grounds out to second base and scores the runner at third. And it's not sexy and you're still gonna be 0 for 1 and sure you get an RBI, but by all metrics, that's, that's failure. But that's the cross, I mean, at the risk of trivializing the cross. It's, it's a laying down of self for, for a higher end. 
Listen to the way Paul says it in, in Philippians. This, this great, which seems like early creed of the church, some kind of, it just seems obvious that it was a key part of their liturgy. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, in other words, if you're saying you're his guy, his gal, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, so what does that mean to be of one mind? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Well, each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. What if the story here is about Jesus' commitment to a very strong framing story? I was listening listening to Gay last week, and if you weren't here or haven't listened to that, I just can't recommend enough just the depth of insight from what she had to say last week, but as she told that story about the time that she was sentenced to 30 days in jail and how that, her, her, her baby was brought to her every day and she could only interact with it through a, through a plate of plexiglass and how ultimately that was really the transforming moment, that was the moment as I understand it where she was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get things right. I'll live the right story. In the first gathering, as I was sitting there listening, I, I just couldn't help but think like, man, I hope the judge knows the story. Because I would imagine that's a very thankless job and at times a very dark job, probably all the time a very dark job. And I just, in the season of life that I'm I'm in, I guess, I just had this sense of like, I just hope the judge knows that in this case, her being sentenced to 30 days in jails actually did bring reform and changed her life. Second gathering, as she started telling the story, I had the same recurring thought. And then it hit me. And I think this is because of some conversations that I've been having with some friends, but then it hit me doesn't matter if the judge learned in this life whether or not it changed her. Because if this story has any validity, if, if it actually is true, then, then the judge knows. And maybe I'm just operate for the second on the assumption that the judge has long ago passed. Christian or not, if we take seriously the fact that we're accountable for our lives, the judge, the judge knows. At some point, He had or will, I don't claim to understand the timing of that. He had or will have the opportunity to stand before God and it just seems obvious that in that instance, that'll be one of those like, nice job, go put another diamond in his crown kind of thing. I don't claim to, I know that we're working with metaphor at that point. But I wonder if, if part of the function of this Matthew story for us today is this reminder that I love the way N.T. Wright says it, that at the cross, the, the foolish power of the world and the foolishness of God went mono e mono. That at the cross, what we're really dealing with, I think the way he says it, is, is the world and evil like taking its best shot at goodness. And then we get goodness, we get God, we get Christ taking its best counter shot. And yet that counter shot was, was Christ. It was a suffering servant. It was serving others. And if you're like me, you can get sidetracked here and go like, how does that play out in like military and government? And frankly, I think that's a separate conversation. Jesus wasn't a president and he wasn't a general of an army. He was an individual, and at least on that course, it seems clear 
that what Jesus is saying is the powerful foolishness of God wins. Listen, we're, we're all grieving the cultural moment we're in in different ways. And if we're not careful, we're, we're all dry, drawing these, these lines in the sand. Most of them around ideology. I wonder if it's a season where every Christ follower, myself included, needs to recognize a little bit that we're all guilty of putting our political and ideological identities before our kingdom identities. And it's proving that it's, it's not really helping the cause. We're all just digging deeper trenches. But the trench Christ calls us to is one of self-giving love. He says sometimes you lose. Remember, there was no big crowd at the cross. Sometimes what looks final in the loss is, is actually a victory. But sometimes, maybe like that judge, you don't actually even get to celebrate it as victory until... This life is over. So here I guess would be my challenge to you. If you showed up this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christ follower, then good on you. And I, I guess I'm just operating on the assumption that, that you're hoping that there's some other narrative that makes more sense than the one that you're having offered to you. And please just know that, that the Christ narrative is real easy to step into and then a whole lot of work. But it starts by just speaking your own language and telling God that you, you want him. You can even use communion as this way of just celebrating his body broken, his blood poured out for you. Uh, but for the more, majority of you who, who walked into the room this morning identifying as Christ followers, maybe the question is what kind? In this hyper-Protestant age where we can just all kind of, I love the way Mark Sayers say it, we can just DIY our own spirituality. We can assemble any kind of Christian belief system we want. But Christ is actually fairly clear. A way of saying my life is about you, God, and the way I do power is the way Christ does power. And God, I'm not always gonna get it right, but I'm gonna lean into your wisdom before I trust anybody else's. And I just invite you this morning uh, to, to use this communion time to, to do whatever business that you, you want to do with, with God. Lord, thanks God for these ancient stories and, and would you help us remember that ancient doesn't mean outdated or weak or even fictitious. Uh, as much as it feels like we're living in a new time and a new c cultural moment, Lord, we just recognize that they're all cyclical. And that quite frankly, uh, what we're facing is what most people who've ever lived has, have faced. Whom do we rely upon? What's the story that's gonna drive our life? What's the framing narrative that gives us our meaning? And ultimately, who's our life about? Thanks, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.